Hello everyone and welcome back to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once upon a time I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, as we'll talk about today. It all goes round again, and here I am once more on a new phase of the journey, one to examine the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having what some people consider to be an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings to each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'm also going to weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally like the ending as I feel that there is a difference in um, someone's subjective opinion of something and more of an uh, objective approach to things. We tend to get caught up in the... Uh, and the interchangeable nature of good versus best, and I always like to break those those things apart. So, with all of that said, yes, I will be discussing endings today, but I'm going to actually go into detail because today I'm going to be focusing on the recent publication of the conclusion of the Gwendy trilogy, Gwendy's Button Box. So, Thank you, everyone, for being patient, and for everyone who's tuning in for the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast. It's great to have you here. So if you have tuned in, just checking out, being like, hey, what is this podcast of the Stephen King podcast repertoire? What does this podcast, what's it going to be able to give to me? Well, you have hundreds of episodes to be able to go back in which I've explored each of the works in Stephen King in a lot of detail. Um, so you can go back into my back catalog and just peruse at your leisure. Or if you just tuned in and you wanted to see what I have to say about Gwendy, well, you've got that too. So let's talk about Gwendy. Um, back when uh, Gwendy's Button Box came out, I uh, reviewed it. I did not review Gwendy's uh, Feather. Is that the name of it? I, I apologize. I stayed away from it um, just because this is the you know Stephen King cast. And I think it's great that Richard Chismar gets to collaborate with Stephen King. And I think it's cool that Stephen King uh, you know allows for these collaborations. You know, I'm a longtime fan of the... Uh, the Talisman in the Black House, and I like the the idea that he collaborates with um, authors, so that's great. I just, I didn't go to the Gwendy's Magic Feather, that's what it was, um, just because it was Stephen King free. And then when uh, the final task came out, I hemmed and hawed, and I wasn't sure if I would review it, but I picked it up, I said, you know what, I, I'd been working hard uh, on some other stuff um, in the in my real life uh, for a while and I just needed that shot of just you know what I gotta do something for me and there's a new Stephen King book out so why am I denying myself this uh, but that uncertainty um, and the that that hemming and hawing, like I said, is something I think that we need to talk about a little bit because there is a difference to me um, with Gwendy's button box and Gwendy's uh, magic feather and Gwendy's final task as opposed to, um, you know, for instance, when Fairy Tale comes out in the spring and when the next Holly Gibney book comes out, um, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Fairy Tale will come out in the fall and uh, Holly Gibney will come out in the spring and when uh, Billy Summers came out and, and when a new Stephen King book comes out, I'm there. 
I'm there and there's no hesitation and there's no questioning. Am I going to read the Stephen King book? No, I'm going to go out and get the Stephen King book. But I categorized these books differently because there is this idea of fan service that's built into it. And I think that we need to talk about fan service a little bit um, and how the idea can split fandom into two different um into two different uh, bases. So what is fan service? You know, I, I tend to define fan service as, you know, creating celebratory moments based on a fan's understanding of the text, whether it be a, a book, a television show, comic book, uh, a movie or a franchise. And I think that there's moments of celebratory fan service that we have seen, um, you know, more often than not, uh, the, the following moments that I'll talk about are, are moments in which fan service is done correctly, um, by which I mean that it satisfies the bulk of the intended audience. Now, if you go onto YouTube and you type in audience reactions to Avengers Endgame or Spider-Man No Way Home, um, you will see that, that these are moments that fans respond to positively and where the creators have gone out of their way to make sure that the responses from the fans live up to the expectations that the fans had as they went into um, that movie. Um, and I would say that J.K. Rowling had done that as well in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. There are definite moments that are teed up so the fan, as you're reading it, can pump their fist um, in happiness and and so I, I think that there's we're seeing a lot of examples of fan service um, but I would argue that these moments of fan service um, run parallel not not only do they allow for this ultimate just you are plugged into the the, the story and you 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 get to see something that you've always wanted to see and it's fantastic so that that's great you are being served something as a fan but it's never at the detriment of um, what the characters are going through or the crafting of the story itself it never seems as the storytellers have to make a decision um, to to pare back on the the story or a character development in service of fan service and I, I i think that there's a difference there um because then we have divisive fan service um which is i would say star wars the force awakens that's divisive fan service that's a very fan servicey movie um where you you see a lot of the, the the images um that that you you have strong positive connections with um again and again whether it's a Death Star, whether it's a sand planet. Um, you have Rise of Skywalker, which I think was designed post-Endgame. Um, and I, I think that there was a lot of trappings that J.J. Abrams and maybe um, Kathleen Kennedy felt that they needed, that they were trapped by because the, the level of fan service in uh, Endgame was so potent and so positive and it led to it being the number one movie of all time for a spell. Um, I feel as though the rise of Skywalker had to uh, lean into these moments 
even though they don't feel earned as much in The Rise of Skywalker. I would say The Book of Boba Fett, which just recently wrapped up, is full of fan service. Um, and in these cases, nostalgia and the weaponization of our shared past plays into it. You know, with dragging decades of old franchises into the modern day with some sort of legacy attachment. Um, so I, I, I think that these are two examples of celebrated fan service, divisive fan service. I didn't put The Last Jedi in there because I don't think that it is serving anything to the fans. It is divisive. Um, so I, for anyone that is a critic of The Last Jedi, I don't want you to think that I did not include that in divisive fan service because... I don't think that what Ryan Johnson was doing was giving fan service, um, especially it's smack dab in the middle of two movies that really go out of its way to give us fan service. Um, so I, I say all of this to ask the question of where do the Gwendy books fall? What's interesting to me is that, I'm not going to answer the question yet, but what King has always done King has always dealt in fan service. I mean, he popularized literary Easter eggs before that was even a term, all right? But he always balanced those Easter eggs, which I think are examples of fan service because if you read, um, you know, uh, um, Pet Cemetery, and there is a mention of Cujo or a mention of Carrie, that makes you smile as a reader. That is King tipping his hat to you as a fan, saying, I see, I see you, constant reader. You know, I'm going to reference this, this other thing that you have read and make some connections here for you because we're all on this journey together. I think that that's an example of fan service. Now, he balanced these Easter eggs with the understanding that the Easter egg or the reference or the previously understood concept shouldn't detract from the story. Now look at Insomnia, for instance, a, a book where he leans the story heavily into pre-established mythology. Now for those who aren't familiar or don't care about the Dark Tower, the revelation and the conflict seem forced. For those who want more Dark Tower special sauce poured onto their burger, it tastes wonderful. Now what's the, ans the honest answer here? I think where he strikes the, the most poignant balance of fan service is on the final book of the Dark Tower. And I'll get into this again in much greater detail next week where I review the ending of the Dark Tower. But, you know, I've gone into detail in my review of, of the Dark Tower itself, which you can go into, and spoilers for the Dark Tower. Now, he alludes to and references many of his past works, but this is the key here. Always through the lens of the tone and the theme and the story of the Dark Tower itself. And as a result, the fan service that he's giving us here can be very dangerous. He subverts these moments from mythologizing the deaths of certain characters while giving others wildly inglorious conclusions. He goes out of his way to stress the importance, acknowledging the time spent with these characters by the fans. So that should count as fans as, as servicing the fans, but it also should be noticed that he doesn't give the fans what they want. And I've long been on record. I, I had a, a, a Twin Peaks podcast. David Lynch and Mark Frost did very similar things in uh, Twin Peaks The Return. And this is a tricky situation, which he actually explores in great detail in Misery. 
When fandom is characterized as a singular unit, things can get ugly. Everyone is an individual with individual tastes and interests. And when a fandom starts speaking on behalf of what they think is best for a property, it creates divisions in that very fandom, as evidenced by the state of the Warner Brothers DCEU, Star Wars, etc. Now, thankfully, as I've noticed before and online, the Stephen King online community has largely avoided these pitfalls. Even when the Tolkien fan base seems to be demonstrating some uh, ire at the Rings of Power, um, the way in which the Martin fan base turn on the Game of Thrones phenomenon, and the Harry Potter fans happen to be in a state of identity crisis as they figure out how to separate the art from the artist. Sorry, guys. Sorry. So, here we are. Mention all of this to talk about the Chismar King partnership. As part of the promise of the book, it's to deliver upon the concept of fan service. Child protagonist. The man in black. The man in black and Castle Rock? These things are designed for an audience who want the greatest hits of the King catalog. So there needs to be a consideration of that when critiquing it. Now, here's what I get. This is where I get the, the divisive. As I fully acknowledge that King fandom hasn't really been divisive, so I'm doing the thing that I should not be doing. I should just enjoy a thing. I should just smile at the references. But fan service for the fake of sand surface always just rings hollow for me. And I struggled with engaging in the world of Gwendy because I was always suspicious of the fan service first aspect of it. So I just needed to put that out there into the world as a preamble before I started getting into um, Gwendy. Okay, and like I said, I didn't even do the second book. And so I need to fully acknowledge that, that I reviewed the first chapter and the last chapter without really going into the, without not even going in, like not even doing a, a cursory exploration of the middle chapter whatsoever. So there is inherent faults within any critique that I might give um, to this final book. And so I can't really speak on the totality of Gwendy. I can only really speak in detail of the first book and the final book. Um, but I do believe that fan service is built into it and take what you will about fan service. Speak, you know, whatever your thoughts are on fan service, whether it feels like fan fiction or not, there is an element to the Gwendy books that I feel as though are fan fiction-y to me. Um, but let me talk a little bit about um, the, the the big ultimate aspects of the, the, the building blocks of Gwendy's um, final task. Here is what I think was a great idea from Chismar and King, giving Gwendy Alzheimer's. The idea of Alzheimer's in space, it's a truly horrifying concept, truly. And I think that it's done well. It, it builds in a ticking clock set against um, and propels Gwendy's um, final task. You know, this needs to get done to save the universe 
as her mind is deteriorating rapidly, it's a, a wonderful, smart decision that I think um, really pulls this story along. It was such a quick read. I finished it, you know, in a day and a half. You know, had I, you know, and I got the book, um, you know, at night. Um, if I had gotten the book in the morning, I, I would have finished it in the day. And that's a testament to the book. It's a very, very easy read, um, partially because you're slipping on this pair of old slippers um, by design. That's the fan service nature of it. Um, but also because, you know, they do such a, a wonderful job at building in this level of tension that makes you want to continue reading. So that that's a great and horrifying concept. And uh, I really tip tip my hat towards them for for that um okay now let me talk about i'm gonna get to ferris in a minute i'm actually literally i apologize i'm just taking my notes and i'm moving them i apologize that is not good podcasting right there but um let me talk about the politics there's a lot of politics um, in this book, which shouldn't be a surprise as King has been um, very political. Um, I mean, his entire career, but with the, the rise of social media and the politicized uh, nature that social media brings and everyone has a voice and social media has been weaponized by politicians and politicians have become celebrities due to social media and with their own followers and the, the celebrity nature of politics is really getting in the way of the um, uh, civil service nature of, of politics and that expectation. Um, so King has, you know, really put his opinions out there into the universe. Um, so I'm not surprised, um, you know, that, that it is so political in nature, baked into the very conceit of Gwendy being a politician and her... Um, battling some of the more unhealthy aspects of um, politics and those in political office and the beliefs of those that vote for those in office. Um, I'm not surprised, um, you know, and, you know, I, when the authors stop taking pot shots at, at Trump, who get who gets, um, you know, name dropped quite often. They, they, I, I think that they're more successful less with the, like I said, the pot shots at Trump. And I think they're more successful when they capture the warring nature in our country with the belligerent nature of a certain contingent of GOP voters um, with the Senator McGowan character. Um my reading of an absorption of this component saw more nuance, more objective, uh, or more uh, objectivity. Um, you know, more to say. They had more to say than just the, you know, the, the criticism of of uh, President Trump, former President Trump. Um, now, maybe at this point, I'm just more interested in reading about the sentiments in certain voters and the factors that that led to Trump. Um, and will lead to future Trump-like figures um, than, than Trump himself. Um, I don't want to look back. I want to actually have our artists um, go go deeper into the, the philosophies and the social critiques um, rather than looking at, you know, one politician. 
who certainly was influential in many of the wrong ways. Um, but I, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't end with him. And there's something deeper there, and I want that explored. And I think that when Chismar and King explore that um, and start peeling back the layers, it, it gives us possibility um, in story and understanding and insight that they both have the ability to, to be able to pull out of their story. Um, and so I just wish they had gone deeper. Now, with that said, uh, if you just take the book as a form of therapy, it's nice to have a female politician beating a smug, narcissistic, hypocritical adulterer in the polls. So that's nice. Um, now, what's important to note here in terms of our politics is that in the years since the introduction of the shadowy organization Sombra, is that we have watched the corruption of democratic interests by the intersectionality of politics and corporations in the real world. So to have Sombra once again take the stage from the shadows and have corrupt politicians and entitled millionaires involved in a plot to at best remove power uh, from the less powerful and at worst um, hurdle us all headlong into extinction, uh, it feels very apt. And when you consider the role of social media, Facebook, false information, knowing that Sombra's most famous subsidiary is North Central Positronics, it's a little chilling. So I just needed to note that. Um, I want to talk about COVID here. Um, you know, King has discussed the difficulty of writing a story set during COVID, but here they lean into it and actually make it a part of the story. You know, in fact, the owner of the button box is responsible for the virus. And I don't know how to feel about that. Um, I, I don't know if that is too soon. And it's the first time that I have actually questioned an author's, and I just don't mean a, a writer, but any, any storyteller using current events Um possibly too soon. And I know that this is a long-standing question that that people have, you know, after 9/11, how how when was it too soon to actually start to comment upon 9/11? Um, you know, Vietnam, you know, when once the Vietnam movies started occurring, when was it too soon? It's it's a natural question to ask, and for me, um I don't I don't know if if we really get much out of the 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 idea of um, of the box creating um, the 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 uh, COVID nineteen, especially since we have had King give us superflus um, before. So I, I guess I I don't know. This isn't a criticism. It's me just wrestling with something that I've never had to wrestle before, um, before with. And I just wonder how anyone else feels about that. Um, so those are the, the, the big, the big components here, the politics and the Alzheimer's in space, um, that I wanted to talk about before I got into the, the major fan service components here, which is the dark tower. We got to talk about the, the dark tower. Um, so Spoiler alert for all of the, the Dark Tower series, everyone. You might want to cry off now and get back later after you've finished the Dark Tower. But up first, let's talk about Ferris. Now, I have at length 
devoted many hours at this point talking about the chaotic nature of um, of Walter Paddock, who is the, the the real name of the character we know as Randall Flagg of Walter Odim. Um, so I have long talked about this character and the, the the different interpretations that we have seen of him throughout the years. And I, I think a, a misunderstanding of of our of us as readers of who this character is, maybe what we want to see. Spoiler alert again for the Dark Tower. There was a lot of disappointment in the way in which the character went out and disappointment that I felt certainly when I first read it because I had built up this character in my mind. You know, this was the the, the grand villain of the stand. And then he, he, he swaggers into the Dark Tower series, seeming confident and like he has a plan. And, you know, then if you go back and read this character, who in part was shaped by um, the, the, the calculating... Uh, machinations of the version of him in the eyes of the dragon i think that it 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 gave us this idea that he understood more and was more in control of the story but when you look at the stand and i've said this before so i apologize if i'm repeating but he's an opportunist he's not a grand planner here he you know he only comes to power because the world kind of ends and that's it and you know he is not really responsible for anything. He just he just coalesces a a, a a contingent of people who needed someone to take the reins. Um, but he was someone that had existed for a while and kept to the shadows and was a troublemaker. You know, he's an agent of chaos. Um, and he goes out like a punk, and I think that that's really fitting for this character. I love, love, love his death. And so we see something else here. He's not a villain, you know? And so rather than that trickster agent of chaos, a supernatural joker, he's really more of a Gandalf figure, which is weird. It's weird to see, and I don't get it. I really don't. You know, you can make the argument that it is, you know, we're all living in a multiversal world now where everyone understands what the multiverse is. And so you can say that, hey, it's a multiverse version of the 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 Randall Flagg character but I don't know if that aligns with what we have seen with this character um you know in in multiversal stories there are some characters who are singular in nature um that exist as themselves running through the multiverse um and I it always seemed as though Roland was one of them and Flag was another and the Crimson King was a third and there are no variations. There are no variants um, of. They just, they are singular in nature and they are like the tower and um, in, in that regard. And I, maybe I'm wrong. Um, maybe I am. Um, so, I mean, one exploration, you know, explanation is I am wrong and this is just a different version of flag um a more benevolent figure um but to me it just rings so discordantly from what we know of the character i i just again there's a fan service aspect to this where oh it's richard ferris rf rf it's randall flag he, he's now in in castle rock how cool is that guys how cool is that right um 
that to me it just seems like a different character just call just give him another name and it fits within the pantheon of these mysterious wizard figures that king has given us whether it be um leland gaunt or whether it be andre Lenoge, or whether it be um randall flag or if it is the um the elvid um, I think from uh, Fair Extension, these devil figures, these wizard figures. And if there was one of these characters who exists very similarly to the others, but is more benevolent, that's cool. To me, that would be a level of, uh, of an Easter egg. Um, not, a, not, I'm sorry, not an Easter egg, but fan service to me that works in conjunction with the established... Um, themes and patterns and tropes that King works with, where if there was a character who functioned the way that this character does and didn't have those initials RF, I would make those mental links to all of the other characters that I've seen like this prior in Stephen King works and like this version more because it's different and still exists within these characters and within these tropes of the characters but it's a new nuance and it's a new wrinkle to me because the characterization of this character is so different to me it feels like that level of fan service that i just don't like where it's inserting some a character that we know that is now acting different from how that character has acted before into the past, where it just seems like a different character. And it makes, makes me question, well, why is this character here at all? This character is here to service the fans. And that's where I have the issue. I just, I can't run up. I, I just, I rub a foul of it. I just I can't get behind it. And then he dies here, which is just, it is different, clearly, from the portrayal of his death in the Dark Tower. So again, it, it's just, there are questions here that to me are not enduring questions or um, titillating questions. They're just, eh, questions that I don't know, it, it, it just, I, I hate to say it, but it seems like sloppy storytelling. And I hate that term, and I don't like using it against uh, this book, because who am I? Who am I? But that's just how it feels um, with this particular character. Um because it's just, the portrayal in these books are just not consistent with the characterization from the others. Um, and this is actually in line with some out-of-step characterizations that we have seen um, in post-Dark Tower work relating to the Dark Tower. And I just want to continue this criticism with full acknowledgement. I'm putting this in neon lights, everyone, okay, with a, with a bullhorn in my hand. This is a full acknowledgement that this is the absolute worst type of criticism that I'm giving right now. The, the one where the fan believes that he, she, or they knows better than the author. I'm pushing my glasses so deep into the bridge of my nose, I should be able to see out of the back of my skull. So fully acknowledged. Aside from Ferris's weirdly helpful characterization, we've also seen this in the short story, uh, Year where the low men arrive to pick up the e-reader. Okay, to me, the low men wouldn't have cared if a device from one universe shows up in another. The low men have always been in service to breaking the beams, and 
wouldn't that in some way, the, the intermingling of realities, at least make it easier for them to accomplish that mission? Instead, wouldn't it have made more sense for the Tet Corporation to come and take the e-reader? Similarly, wouldn't it have made sense for Richard Ferris to be replaced with a member of the Tet Corporation? Or if they really wanted to give some sort of fan service, how about Ted Brodigan, who has found a new mission in the post-Dark Tower cycle? That, to me, would have made more sense than Richard Ferris. But, again, let's look at what the promise of Gwendy was. The man in black comes to Castle Rock. And so they have to follow through on the promise of that and have it still make sense as it gets deeper into Stephen King mythology. And I believe that it it um, runs against the, 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 the consistency of what has been established before. Okay? So that's the biggest criticism that I have for it. And now... Let me just talk about one stray thought here. Um, There's a beautiful segment with Gwendy on the space station as she's looking out through a window. And the author, they juxtapose her place among the stars with an 11-year-old Gwendy looking through a telescope. The two versions of the character grappling with their place in the universe. And it's incredibly powerful. And so I just, for all of the criticism that I just threw at them, I, I, you know, obviously they're two master storytellers at work who are still able to balance some of these issues that I have with real potent tear-jerking moments. Okay, let me get into some Easter eggs and some Stephen King-isms before I start discussing the ending of, um, of the book. So, Easter eggs, and of course there's quite a few. Uh, there's the number 19. Uh, the name of the rocket is called Eagle 19 Heavy. The space crew is planning on sen- uh, spending an additional 19 days on the Many Flags space station. So the number 19 is a number that obviously we have seen so much in the Stephen King universe. That's so 19, and we see it again. Tet. The Tet Corporation is at work in this book. So the Tet Corporation comes about in the final book of The Dark Tower, and it is an organization that um, is designed to work towards the... Um, keeping the the rose safe and the multiverse in place and protecting the tower and working actively against the forces of the crimson king so it's cool that there is a space station um that there is a spaceship that is created by the 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 tech corporation um to assist in 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 gwendy's journey um i again i just feel as though i believe that the 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 richard ferris character probably should have been a member of the Ted Corporation. Castle Rock, obviously Castle Rock continues to be and has been a major part of these Gwendy stories. Frank Dodd is referenced, though not by name. Um, There is a book about a serial killer that is in part inspired by the events of her hometown, which, as we all know, included serial killer Frank Dodd. Um, Now, not only do we get Castle Rock, we also get Dairy. Um, this is a book that has both Dairy and Castle Rock. And um, specifically, we have mention of the Bradley Game, which is a notable event in the history of Dairy. We have uh, Desjardin mentioned, which is a, a name um, uh, that first shows up in 
uh, the, the novel Carrie. So the character of Das Jardin most likely is a relative of um, one of the characters from Carrie. Silver Wolf's Head Cane. The authors make note of Ferris's cane and how it should have been a fantastical uh, one adorned with a silver wolf's head, a reference to fellow wizard Andre Linoge. He says we need to palaver. This is what Ferris says to Gwendy. This terminology is used very often in the world of the Dark Tower. The White. Ferris describes the previous owner of the box as belonging to the White, which is the, the force of good in the universe of Stephen King. Norris Ridgwick is a longtime sheriff of Castle Rock. He makes an appearance here. It's always great to see Norris, who had taken over duties from Alan Pangborn. Um, okay. And then Derry, we get, like I said, we have Derry in full-on Derry mode. Um, obviously, uh, if you're going to talk about Derry and you're writing novels that are meant to make fans pleased, you're going to have many references to Pennywise, the dancing clown. We have people referring to hearing voices in the pipes and the sewers. And there, there is just, this is not a novel that's going to talk about the thematic evils of Derry. This is a novel that talks about the very physical evils and supernatural evils of Derry, which the most famous one is our uh, good old friend Pennywise, the Dancing Clown. Witcham Street is mentioned, Upile Mill, Upile Up Mile Hill, Niebolt Street, and other famous locations from both It and Insomnia are referenced and seen. The Paul Bunyan statue, statue is referenced. Um, an old bicycle is spotted in Derry, most likely a reference to, if not you know, it being silver itself. Like I said, there's been laughter and voices in the drain pipes. Juniper Hill is mentioned. The low men in yellow coats show up as characters um, in this novel. Uh, I always like the low men, so that's great. Sombra, the eye of the Crimson King. A character says uh, there are other worlds than these. Uh, Discordia is mentioned. The Twelve Beams, Black 13, Tahin are referenced, um, and playing hearts. Gwendy's dad is playing hearts, which um, characters in Stephen King novels have often played, most notably uh, in the uh, novella uh, Hearts in Atlantis, which um, included, which was uh, the name of the, the, the collection, which also included Low Men in Yellow Coats. Okay, so let's talk about the Stephen Kingisms. Uh, politician, um, you know, King often uh, deals with politicians, except this time the politician is our protagonist. Um, and as I said, this makes sense for King to get around to this as he has been increasingly political in his tweets and his ire over the last decade. And also, a Stephen Kingism is the writer. Now, Gwendy isn't just a politician, she is also a writer. And the duo have fun with this, subbing her in for Stephen King, referring to her as Maine's favorite writer, and lampoons his sex scene language when Gwendy's own writing is used against her in a political attack. The, the authors also use the opportunity as Gwendon, uh, Gwendy as a writer to give uh, syntactical exercises disguised as cognitive tests for Gwendy that allows both the authors and the character to show off while underlining the importance of sentence construction. As we read this novella, which is a form of magic conjured only by the careful construction of words, 
King and Chismar, Chismar are able to create a brand new reality, one that we can hold in our hands. For Gwendy, the precise combination of words in the exam allow her to hold onto her slipping reality for just a little bit longer. Uh, the enchanted object. King likes his enchanted objects as much as he likes the Lord of the Rings, and the box functioned very similarly to the One Ring, as Ferris functions less like Flag and more like Gandalf. Um, we also have car crashes and death by car, um, especially death by car in Kerry, uh, in Derry, I should say. Um, so again, we have another car crash in Derry. I don't want to go too much into it, but clearly, uh, car crashes have factored heavily into the worlds that Stephen King has created and unfortunately in the real world with Stephen King himself. Um, let's see. At one point, there's a reference to um, a child's toy car coming to life, um, which was uh, most likely a reference to the regulators and motocops. Um, we also have a blonde angelic man hiding the devil beneath. Um, with the, the, the low man who was, um, that seems to have taken over operations of the, the bad guys. Um, and it, the description is very similar to the original description that we get of the Crimson King in Insomnia. Um, unstable alpha male. Uh, Winston is the latest in a long line of unstable alpha males, whether it be Greg Stilson, Big Jim Rennie, or Danforth Buster Keaton. And lastly, uh, Death in the Stars. Uh, Gwendy's Death in the Stars is lonely and sad and world-saving, much like Jim Gardner's death in Tommyknockers. So that is just my overall thoughts on Gwendy and the Stephen Kingisms and Easter eggs. Now I want to get into the ending. And let's really zero in and focus in and start asking the questions about endings that I have been lately um, in my journey of the Stephen King cast. So first we have to ask, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? Yes, I would say so. And I would say that there is absolute beauty to Gwendy drifting off into the universe. She has to save the universe, and then she goes off into the universe. Um, so I think that there was beauty in that. I think that it's an appropriate conclusion to Gwendy. Um, nothing about her conclusion is off character. So yes, fine, good. Question, does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? And I would say to an extent. The box is sent into the vast reach of space, so yes, on a surface level, yes. However, we got to talk about Winston here as our um, antagonist. He's telegraphed as the villain as soon as he shows up on page one. So the revelation that he's the villain, it just doesn't land with any punch. Uh, we think he's the villain. He turns out to be the villain. We think he's going to try to take the box. He attempts to take the box. He fails. Uh, to me, it would have been more interesting if Gwendy thought he was the villain because she sh he shares so many characteristics with her political rival. And it would be a nice commentary about how we lump people into categories and then judge each other 
based on commonalities shared with political parties, ideologies, etc. But that's not a road taken here. And I think that it weakens the potency of the conflict between Winston and Gwendy. It, it is so paint by numbers. Here's the bad guy. The bad guy is corrupted and further and he's enticed by supernatural means and he tries to do the thing that we all thought he was going to do. And so it just, it takes a lot of the air out of of the book. And I think that if we didn't have such a strong concept of her with her growing Alzheimer's as she needs to complete this mission, if we didn't have that, I would be far more critical of the book. Um, but I, I, so yes, on one hand, the authors wrap up the plot. However, part of wrapping up the plot comes with a very pedestrian, unremarkable villain um, whose uh, antagonism of the protagonist's uh, wishes and desires um, is very rote and predictable and it doesn't lead to really any tension. Um, and I found it rather lacking. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolisms, and motifs? Uh, yes, um, because I would say as her mind deteriorates into blackness, her body sails into ultimate blackness. Uh, what is the most famous scene in the novel, and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Um, eh, I think it's too early to tell. Um, and are there any other factors that we need to consider? Yeah, I, I would say that this is very fan fiction-y. Uh, so take that... Um, how you will. If that's a compliment, take it. If it's um, a criticism, you should take that as well. Now, with all of that said, here's a question. Do I happen to like the ending? I think it's fine. I think the ending is fine. To quote the theme song from the 2012 to 2017 five-season Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, which, in my estimation, is the best encapsulation of the turtle story. Um, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. That's what happens. It's fine. So is it a good ending, though? So I, I think the, it's a fine ending. It's not great. It's not awful. It's fine. Um, that's what I think. Now, is it a good ending? Objectively speaking, is it good? Again, very similar to how I feel about it, what I think about it. I think it's just fine. Um, so I think that the needle stays directly smack dab in the middle. On the surface level, all of this sounds great. There's a battle for the multiverse on a space station. It's dope. It's cool. I don't think it lives up to the premise for the reasons that I had mentioned, but because they had built in the ticking clock of Gwendy's deteriorating condition, it creates a level of tension that propels us through the ending, much like Gwendy being propelled through the universe herself. So I, you know, I do have that one criticism about the, the lack of originality or mystery or tension with the uh, villain of Winston. But with that said, the, the concept alone is strong enough to carry us through the ending, which is um, beautiful in its own right and sad in its own right. And um, I think that works. And I don't think that one component of an ending should draw down everything of an ending. So I think it's good. I think that for all what we're looking for here, I think it's good. I might not think it's great, but I think it's good. And that means that it's not bad. Um, so here are the tallies. I happen to like 32 out of 36 endings, and, you know, 
but based on these questions, 31 out of 36, 36 endings have been good. So, everyone, those are my thoughts on Gwendy's final task. Um, thank you for sticking around. If you have time, please head on over to um, iTunes, leave a review. It really helps me out. Um, and if you have any thoughts on Gwendy, uh, please write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Um, or not just about Gwendy, but about anything with Stephen King. Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, everyone. Um, when I come back next time, I'm going to stay within this world of the Dark Tower and discuss the ending to the Dark Tower itself before moving on in the chronology. So um, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast. <laughs>